Hey, Slavic Connection listeners, as the war continues in Ukraine, so do our efforts to keep you informed on the situation and provide you with episodes that explain what's going on over there, explain certain facets that you may have questions about. So for today's episode, we had Dr. Andreas Umland on the show. He's an analyst for the Stockholm Center for Eastern European Studies at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. He's also an associate professor at the National University of Kiev Mohila Academy. I was joined by Colin for this call. Colin, what a fantastic conversation. Yeah, we touched on the nuclear non-proliferation. And then we also talked about the right and the far right in Ukraine, as well as the narratives around that. The story that the Kremlin is now telling about Ukraine could be told about any country. If you would ask me about German politics, I could tell you about the so-called National Democratic Party of Germany, which is a far-right party, you know, all sorts of skinhead groups. You know, you would be totally scared and you would decide to never go to Germany. The same could be said about the U.S. If you can sell it, then, you know, you will you will have the effect. Take a listen. To the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Umland, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So you've written and spoken extensively about Ukraine, Russia, and the nuances of the ongoing war, but we're extremely excited to have you on today to provide some insight on Ukraine's far right, its ultra-nationalists, the sort of movement that we've been seeing, particularly from the Azov Battalion. But before we get into, you know, Putin's claims of Nazism in Ukraine or the battalion discussion itself, uh, let we kind of were hoping to start with the basics. What are we talking about when we mention Ukrainian nationalists and parallel to that ultra-nationalism? Yeah, uh, I guess the the, the start uh, is exactly the one you made. One should distinguish between Ukrainian nationalism and Ukrainian ultranationalism. Sometimes that is not well understood in former imperial nations. That means in nations that have that used to have an empire that there are also nationalisms, forms of, of nationalism that may not be imperial and that may not be primarily a sort of xenophobic and repressive, but that have their origins in the colonial past of these nations. So in Germany, we call that Befreiungsnationalismus. That would in in English sound like liberationist nationalism. So I think that is a big issue in in Ukraine. There is a, a lot of liberationist nationalism, the main focus of which is the full achievement of national independence. So formally, Ukraine has achieved its national independence with the Belovesh Agreement of December 1991, uh, which dissolved the Soviet Union and then created the independent states of first of the uh, Russian Federation, Ukraine and Belarus, and then of the other former Soviet republics. But as we see now with this war, the acquiring full independence and full territorial integrity, political sovereignty, security of borders is a much longer process. It's also something that is not so unusual. So we tend to think of the current war as something absolutely exceptional, absolutely scandalous, and absolutely new. But in fact, if you look at the history of empires that fall apart, this is actually a typical post-imperial war. Ukraine has mainly, has uh, in, in a certain way, only just entered the same trajectory that countries like Moldova or Georgia have already been on for 30 years, which had their 
sort of confrontations with, with the old imperial center already uh, starting 30 years ago. And Ukraine had the fortune, so to say, to have avoided this until 2014, when Russia started also invading Ukraine with the annexation of Crimea and the pseudo-civil war in eastern Ukraine, and now the escalation for the last two months. So uh, nationalism in Ukraine is above all a reaction to the imperial past and also to the neo-imperial present. And the most sort of well-known now ultra-nationalist phenomenon in uh, Ukraine is the political Azov movement, which is often intermixed with the Azov regiment, which is a military unit. There is also a political movement that calls itself Azov. And even this Azov movement is clearly ultra-nationalist, and again, it has to be distinguished from the regiment. Even the Azov movement has to be seen within the context of the current Russian-Ukrainian conflict, which started in 2014. So the Azov movement was a reaction to the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, rather than the cause of the war. One of the reasons that we usually see ultranationalism and right-wing extremism and fascism as negative is because we think of these phenomena as being the causes of war. With at least this part of the Ukrainian ultranationalist movement, namely the Azov part, it has been a reaction to war rather than a cause of war. It has been conditioned by the Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2014 that then led to the consolidation of a few minor groups together with football fans and with other people into what has now become the Azov movement consisting of the National Core Party, a number of clubs, a number of civil organizations or uncivil organizations that constitutes a movement. So uh, even the Ukrainian ultranationalism, the anti-democratic, right-wing extremist, xenophobic part of Ukrainian nationalism is to a large degree actually conditioned by uh, this war of independence that Ukraine is currently still fighting and by the ambivalent situation that Ukraine has been in ever since it became independent in 1991 and that it has been under constant threat from Russia. So. For instance, the first declarations from the Russian parliament concerning Crimea and Sevastopol and that these territories don't belong actually to Ukraine are actually from the 1990s. So till 2014, there was already a lot of non-military conflict between Ukraine and, and Russia and, and a constant threat. There was also an emergence of, of a Ukrainian far right consisting of several parties, but um, all of these parties are shaped critically uh, to a very large degree by this continuous threat from Russia. And I think the important thing here to remember is that this sort of threat perception is, of course, something very basic and fundamental to the extreme right all over the world. That is also what the American far right is saying, that we are under threat and you know somebody's invading us and there is some conspiracy, there is something going on behind the scenes. Most of this is imagined, sheer fantasy. It's just conspirology. In the Ukrainian case, at least with regard to Russia, this is not a fantasy. This is re the real world. And, and as you know, turned out two, two months ago, the threat perception of the entire Ukrainian nationalism, including the ultra-nationalist section, has been very justified. You know? and, the, and, and these people have been talking about a future war with Russia for 30 years.
and it turns out they were right, actually. Yeah. And so that is a, a peculiar uh, peculiarity of moderate Ukrainian nationalism and extreme Ukrainian nationalism, that they have been very much talking not about some sort of Jewish world conspiracy or Bilderberg Club or, I don't know, reptiles or Freemasons or whatever you have, or pedophiles. And, and this is, you know, the Russian army is something very real, and it's really killing Ukrainians. It's not some sort of, uh, you know, imagined secret organization. So that is something, I think, very principally to remember when you talk about Ukrainian nationalism, including Ukrainian ultranationalism, which does, which does not justify in any way the um, xenophobic and anti-democratic aspects of Ukrainian ultranationalism, which are clearly there, and even partly neo-Nazi tendencies there. But still, it's a, it's a slightly different context than, for instance, what I know very well, Russian nationalism, ultranationalism, or German ultranationalism, where the threat perception is basically about imagined dangers and about, you know, conspiracies and all these sort of crazy stuff that, uh, that you probably know about. That is present in Ukraine, too. You also have the sort of crazy theories. But the main discourse is actually about Russia. And that has turned out to be very real and very adequate and very much to the point. So uh, we have this uh, general uh, Ukrainian nationalism, which is very widespread, which is mainly about Ukrainian independence. And we have the Ukrainian far right, which consists of, I would say, three parties that have become known beyond Ukraine's borders. The oldest and most significant one is the so-called Freedom Party, formerly called the All-Ukrainian Union Svoboda Freedom, which is a West Ukrainian largely party that has managed to reach out to central and partly also to southern and eastern Ukraine. Then during the Euromaidan, another party emerged that has by now become actually uh, almost non-existent, the so-called right sector that has been very much present during the Euromaidan and after the Euromaidan's victory and after the start of the Russian invasion. Another party emerged, the National Corps, which is the party that emerged out of the initial Azov irregular or semi-irregular Azov battalion, which is a, a political party that was one of the two products, or let's say one of the three products that came out of the initial irregular or semi-irregular Azov battalion. So you had out of this Azov battalion came the regiment, a regular unit of the Ministry of Interior of Ukraine, you had the National Corps Party and you had a number of the already mentioned clubs and uncivil, uncivil associations that came out of this original Azov battalion. The story about the Ukrainian far right in the last 30 years is basically, if you compare it to other European countries, a non-story because during most of the elections in Ukraine and the elections in Ukraine are relatively free and in most of these elections, the Ukrainian far right has taken uh, part at least with one party or at least with one candidate. And in almost all of these elections, the results of the Ukrainian far right, both uh, parliamentary elections and presidential elections was abysmal. The only exception being 2012, when the all Ukrainian Union Svoboda Freedom got 10.4% and got 36, 37 deputies in the Ukrainian parliament and its own fraction. And for two years, the Ukrainian far right had a, a faction in the Ukrainian parliament and also for a few months in 2014, first four, then three ministers in the, in the Ukrainian government. But then it was kicked out uh, again in 2019 in the parliamentary elections 
Then it had for a few uh, years a small group of single mem member district in uh, elected deputies. And since 2019, actually, the Ukrainian far right has become a politically absolutely marginal force. It has one deputy in the Ukrainian parliament and has performed uh, abysmally in the 2019 presidential elections where the far-right candidate got 1.6% and in the parliamentary elections in which the united far-right where the right sector, the Svoboda party and the national core united in one list, they got 2.15%. Uh, Basically, the Ukrainian far-right is, if you look at it in comparison to the other Euro European far-right um, parties and movements, clearly weaker than in most most other European, even in West European countries. Yeah, For instance, Le Pen, Marine Le Pen just got 41% in the uh, last presidential elections in the second round. And she's clearly far-right. Uh, she comes actually from a far-right family where both her father and her other relatives, she has other relatives who are also active in the, in the far-right. So basically, the Ukrainian far-right is, a, if you look at it in international comparison, largely a non-story. The Azov regiment has now become prominent because of the Russian propaganda and, and in contact, connection with the war. It was a very long answer. Sorry. No, that's fine. We like long answers. There's a lot to say. Yeah. <laughs> I'm interested in the last point. I mean, at the beginning, uh, you kind of differentiated between the Azov movement and the Azov regiment. and. Like you just said, the Azov Regiment has featured very heavily in, in certain discourses, and it seems to be effective. Why does this narrative about the far right in Ukraine seem to have such traction? I can only speculate. My psychological sort of explanation for that, in a way, people are, are looking for an explanation for this war, because, you know, it seems to be totally senseless. You know, why Why would it happen? You know, these countries are so close to each other. Now Russia is destroying Russian-speaking cities. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a ridiculous war. And then there must be some sort of explanation for it. And then people are looking for it. And then they find something. And there's something to be found. For instance, the Azov regiment has taken over the far-right symbolism of the Ukrainian far-right, which is this uh, by now famous wolf's hook, or in German Wolfsangel, which is the symbol of both the Azov movement, also the Azov regiment. It had been earlier used also by the Svoboda party, and, and it has become the official emblem of this regiment. And also there are connections between the Azov Regiment and the founders, the political activists who founded the Azov Regiment. There are connections between the Azov Movement and the Azov Regiment. So this is also undeniable. And, you, and there are certain personnel um, continuities. But still, the, the, the regiment is a military unit. And people go there not because of some sort of ideology or most people who go there do not go because of some, some sort of ideological affiliation, but because it, it has a good reputation. It is said to be an effective fighting unit, one of the most sort of patriotic and, um, and effective Ukrainian units. And then you can sort of construct out of this sort of presence of the symbol, the Wolf's Hook, and out of this history of the Azov regiment, you can, can construct some sort of narrative that seems to justify this uh, Putin, Putin's claim about denazification of, of Ukraine. You know, if you want to do that, you know, you can find, you can basically cherry pick certain parts of the history of the Azov regiment 
also of the of the recent history of the Azov regiment, where there were indeed contacts between the regiment and the National Core Party, where indeed some of the um, original founders, far-right founders of the semi-regular Azov battalion stayed in the regiment and used symbols like the wolf's hook. You can, you can find these signs, but the, the affinity between armed forces and the extreme right is nothing new. You know, we have that in the German army. I suspect that's also a problem in the American army. It's actually a problem of most armies that there is a sort of an attraction uh, of the armed forces for the for ultranationalists because, you know, then they can sort of find the sense of their life in these uh, as fighters. And that is a problem in Ukraine, too. It's also a problem in the Russian army, but that is, of course, not a topic of the Russian propaganda. The Russian far rightists that are in the Russian army or among the Russian mercenaries like the uh, Wagner Group and so on. So it's, it's big on the Russian media and the Russian media sometimes actually picks up true stories, you know, about the regiment, the battalion, the National Corps, the biography of Andriy Bilecki, who was the leader of this Azov battalion in 2014, and then uh, today is the leader of the National Corps Party. He is indeed a racist, or he, at least he was a racist. He made racist statements. And then you can re- repeat that every day, basically. And at some point, people start believing that this is a, is a big deal in Ukraine. Uh, but these are a couple of thousand men in this unit but the picture that many people then get in their heads is this is a sort of Ukrainian SS unit, you know, basically, which is not true. So it's a fighting unit. And in the past, it was accused of war crimes against prisoners. But other volunteer battalions were accused of that in 2014, too. That was also a problem, indeed, of the Azov battalion. But again, these war crimes of irregular or semi-regular units is also not, not nothing Peculiar to Ukraine, it was nothing peculiar to the Azov battalion. Uh, War crimes were committed by ideological battalions, by non-ideological battalions. This is also something that happens in in wars, and even regular units often commit war crimes during wars. But in the Russian media, the Russian media has succeeded in presenting that as something extraordinary, that this is really something symptomatic of the Ukrainian state of the Ukrainian forces, this this is something that Russia needs to do something about, you know, and every good anti-fascist should do something about it. But if you would apply the same logic to other countries, then Russia would have a good or actually better reasons to invade other countries than Ukraine, because you have a stronger far right there, you have, you know, more killings by the far right extremists, you have better performance in, in, in elections, you have stronger organization, and so So, you know, this is all a a manipulation of consciousness. I actually wanted to ask, in looking at, obviously, the other far-right movements in Europe, we can see a little bit of that being reflected in Ukraine as well. Specifically, you brought up Le Pen and her party. Le Pen has gone through a big de-demonization movement, as it's been called, where they expelled the more extremist members. They've sort of cleaned up their image. But there's it's been argued that, you know, they're cleaning up the surface level, but underneath is still, right, that brewing far-right extremism. I guess, could it be argued that with Ukraine, the way that they they kind of changed their logo, Svoboda has changed their logo to the, this three fingers that's supposed to also symbolize more freedom. It's a friendlier image. Uh, the Azov Battalion also has done public interviews, bringing them into their headquarters to kind of show like, look, we're really not the Nazis that we're made out to be. 
right, like the kind of pessimistic angle is that, well, right, this is also surface level. This isn't showing the actuality. But I, I guess you're arguing that really that is true. They've become more mild despite their more perhaps extremist origins. Right now, it's, it's less of a threat than Western media is making them out to be. Well, I would make a distinction here. One thing is to look at the Ukrainian far right, the National Core Party, the clubs around the National Core Party that is that are then called the Azov movement. And that is clearly radical. And you have neo-Nazis there and there are international connections and so on. But another matter is the Azov regiment, which is a military unit where people are selected to serve because of their you know, performance in sports, because of their general you know, education or something like that. They can be actually quite selective in stuffing this particular unit because it's very popular in Ukraine because many want to serve there, not because it, it has a far-right background, but because it's said to be a particularly tough unit. And uh, there's a whole mythology or some sort of uh, narrative of the crucial role of the original Azov battalion in 2014 when they recaptured Mariupol, from, which was briefly uh, sort of occupied by Russia, got its separatists, and then Azov played a certain, the Azov battalion which was not yet fully integrated into the forces of the Ukrainian uh, regular forces, had this success then. The Azov movement, and unfortunately, you know, the Azov movement uses the same name as the Azov regiment. That is, I think, in, as with the Wolf's Hook, that is an unfortunate coincidence, or it's not a coincidence, it's a uh, parallelity, congruity between the two, the name and the, the use of the symbol. That is that is misleading, I think, people. And there are also contexts between the, between the two, but still is a, it is a military unit. And in this military unit, they're serving you know, all sorts of people, among them also far-rightists, and perhaps also among them a few neo-Nazis that I, I wouldn't, you know, in these 2,000 or, 2000 or 3,000 people, probably there are also a few neo-Nazis there, but there are also non, non-nationalists and nationalists and all sorts of people. Because it's a, it's a military unit stuffed by the Ministry of Interior. It's not any longer a political uh, organization. And the political organization that has come out of the Azov Battalion is clearly far right. I mean, there, there's no doubt about that. And that is, that is a problem. But again, you know, it's uh, the, the electoral support for, for, at least before the war, the National Core Party was between 1%, 1.5%. And as I said, all of the parties, when they united as a list in the last elections, in the last parliamentary elections, all of the three major parties got together 2.15%, and they got one, one deputy directly elected into the Ukrainian parliament, which is very low by European standards. That is not how far-right parties usually perform in elections. So, no, I would say there's no, actually, uh, moderation of these parties. The Svoboda party has become somewhat less radical than it used to be. But also, I'm actually skeptical how far they have actually moderated. The problem now is also that to make these distinctions in the conditions of war becomes somewhat artificial, you know. The, the question that now is asked, you ask people, are you ready to defend your your motherland or not? You know, that is the basic question that basically every Ukrainian has to, whether you like it or not, to, to ask your, yourself. And then, and then if then people decide to defend the fatherland, the question is actually why they decide. So because they are liberals and want to defend Ukrainian democracy or because they are fascists and want to defend uh, the Ukrainian race, 
is actually secondary. You know, as, as strange as that may sound to a, to a Western observer living in peaceful times, you know, for whom that would be an enormous difference between one soldier or another soldier. But, you know, on the battlefield, actually, these distinctions become less uh, salient. But you are free to, to contradict me if you don't buy my story. Not to contradict you, but you'd mentioned the popularity of these political movements pre the 2022 escalation in the war. Post-February of 2022, do you see that trajectory changing at all yet? I mean, everybody was in 2014 expecting that the far right would rise because, you know, annexation of Crimea, the pseudo-civil war in the East. And what also happened in, in 2014 during both the presidential and parliamentary elections is that the East Ukrainian and Crimean electorate was excluded from the elections because they couldn't participate in the elections anymore. And this was a part of the electorate that usually did not vote for the Ukrainian far right, which is ethnocentric. So the electorate, the overall Ukrainian electorate changed as a result of the annexation of Crimea and the pseudo-civil war in eastern Ukraine to the advantage of the far right. But what happened actually in the 2014 elections is that the electoral support for the far right in comparison to the 2012 parliamentary elections fell uh, by more than half. So the result was in 2012, 10.4%. And then in October 2014, it was, I think, for the Svoboda party, 4.6%. And the right sector got 1.4 or 1.6%. Well, if you just compare Svoboda, then more than half, if you count in the right sector electorate as well, then almost half of the electorate disappeared, which is not something that many expected. Most people thought, you know, the far right would, of course, benefit from the war, you know, because that's basically has been their narrative, we, that we are in a war, we have to fight a war, Russia, the Russians are trying to, to kill us, and, and here the Russians come and kill us, and sort of confirming the far right discourse but the far right is unable to, to benefit from it and is even un, unable to benefit from the participation of, the, of many far right extremists in the war and actually the death of many ultranationalists in the war who have, who have given away their lives for defending the fatherland. And the far right was not particularly secretive about it. You know, they publicized their losses in the war. And they said, here, we, we, went, we went to the front line, we defended the fatherland and said, and that's why you, would, you should wait, vote for us. But the Ukrainians didn't do though. So, you know, judging from this experience, it's difficult to say now. Perhaps the National Core Party can sort of, they can use, of course, they can say, we once founded the Azov Regiment. The Azov has, you know, this heroic now sort of narrative with Mariupol, and they can maybe use it, and then perhaps they, they will get a few percentage points. I, I wouldn't exclude that, but so far, actually, oddly, uh, the Russian war has not increased the electoral performance of the far right. Could I quickly ask, in 2012, what was the reason for the surge in votes, the surge in popularity? Well, there were a whole number of reasons. I think the main reason was basically that Yanukovych had become president, a pro-Russian president, and he was also accumulating more and more power. And then many voters who were not actually from their demographics and from their political views decided to vote for the most anti-Russian, the most anti-Yanukovych party, which was Boboda then. 
there was no national core or, or Azov movement then, and there was also no right sector then. And that was, I think, the main reason. Another odd reason was that Yanukovych was actually promoting, and his party was promoting the Ukrainian far right because they wanted to have the Svoboda party as a sparing partner in the elections. And in particular, they wanted to have the head of the Svoboda party, Oletian Yibok, as the main contender competing with Yanukovych in, in the next presidential elections. And Yanukovych, that became then ever more clear in, in 2011, 2012, 2013 and 14. The only chance that Yanukovych uh, could be re-elected was if Chanyubok, the head of the Svoboda party, the Freedom Party, gets into the second round. And then in the, uh, in the runoff, Yanukovych has a chance to become president again. Um, so actually, they were promoted. They got airtime. They got money from the Party of Regents, from Yanukovych's party, the major pro-Russian party. And so that was another reason. The third reason was that the, um, the deputies of the moderate nationalist parties, the Timoshenko bloc and the and Yushchenko's, uh, our Ukraine uh, party, in the parliament, some of the deputies had run over to Yanukovych when Yanukovych became president. So they basically betrayed their mandate. They were elected as National Democrats. They got into parliament. Yanukovych becomes president and then basically buys these National Democrats. And they then uh, support Yanukovych and the Azarov government, the, um, the government under, under the pro-Russian Prime Minister Azarov, uh, which was elected then with the, with the voices, with deputies from the National Democrats, the pro-Western moderate nationalist blocs. And Svoboda simply said, our deputies are not going to betray their mandate. And, you know, and then, you know, so, th so they presented themselves as the only re reliable patriots. Yeah, and so people were disillusioned with Timoshenko, Timoshenko's bloc, with Yushchenko's party, and then they voted for the, for the radicals because they rightly assumed that the radical nationalists would not, not go to Yanukovych and would not support Yanukovych, and they never did, actually. Although they were supported, we, we know now that they, they got money, actually, from Party of Regions, and uh, they were also promoted in media by the Party of Regions because, as I said, Yanukovych wanted them as a sparring partner. And that was why they, they got suddenly over 10%. Unlike in all other elections where they got 5% or far, far less than 5%. In the investigation of the electorate of Svoboda, it was a very untypical electorate. It was a highly educated urban electorate with pro-Western views. And these people voted for Svoboda not for ideological reasons, but for strategic reasons. They wanted to have the most anti-Russian or anti-Putinist, anti-Yanukovych party in parliament because they, they were disaffected uh, with the performance of the Timoshenko bloc and, and, and Yushchenko's bloc, and that's why they voted for the Svoboda party. And then this electorate, electorate in 2014 goes back to the National Democrats, and respectively, the far right then loses almost half of its electorate, and then it's halved one, once more half then, or more than half uh, in 2019 with 2.15%. Yeah, I can imagine that it would be very difficult to recreate those precise situational factors of 2012 in the later years. So that certainly explains a lot of why you have this one little peak and then everything sort of goes right back to normal of very low marginal percentages and not a lot of support overall. I wanted to very quickly pivot and just 
touch on Russia because in all of your explanations, it's it's very much making sense now how they've taken these sort of stories about Soboda, about Azov, and to point the finger and saying, look, Ukraine is full of Nazis. They're anti-Russian. They don't like that. They're certainly also taking advantage of a lot of the media coverage that is occurring around Ukraine that's clearly used, being used to pump up their own propaganda. But I'm, I'm curious why why this narrative? Obviously, it's a sort of excuse, it seems like, but why really get their hooks into this sort of reasoning in general? Well, I think the short answer is because it works, because uh, many Russians actually buy the story and I think uh, the the larger context here is World War II and the sort of very important role for national Russian national identity of the victory over German fascism in a way one of the major contributions of Russia to world history. And so what the not so stupid manipulators in the Kremlin have included from this is that they should simply recreate this uh, historic situation in Russian media. And it works, you know. And so the, the story now in the Russian media is the Red Army fought Hitler in the 1940s, and now we are fighting the neo-fascists in, in Ukraine. And unfortunately, many Russians buy this story, although it's misleading. I mean, the, and the odd situation is, of course, that Ukraine has a has a president with a Jewish uh, family background. So it's actually a bizarre situation. Zelensky's uh, biography and, and political success, he he got the best result ever. A presidential candidate got in elections 73 percent in 2019 in the in the runoff. It's a characteristic of Ukraine. So Ukrainians, you could say, are Yes, they are very patriotic, they're nationalistic, but they are not ultra-nationalistic. So it's it's not an exclusive form, largely, of, of nationalism. It can be very inclusive and gives people like Zelensky a very good chance. The story that the Kremlin is now telling about Ukraine could be told about any country. If you would know as, as little about Germany as you know about Ukraine and you would ask me about, you know, to tell you about German politics, I could tell you about the so-called National Democratic Party of Germany, which is a far-right party, about the German Social Union um, or the German, um, no, not the German Social Union, the German People's Union, DVU, which is a far-right party, the alternative for Germany, the, the German Republicans uh, that are our far-right party, you know, all sorts of skinhead groups and all sorts of attacks on foreigners in Germany. I could I could talk to you hours and hours about the post-war German far right and you know you would be totally scared and you would decide to never go to Germany although the same could be said about the US you could of course you could talk a lot about the American far right and the Ku Klux Klan and all the and, and all and and you could tell it a, a story of about the US that is totally skewed and then if you can sell it then you know you will you will have the effect and unfortunately that has worked many in Russia and also outside Russia believe this story Well, in light of observing everything that's been unfolding in the war in Ukraine, every day it seems that there's new uh, new developments, new problems coming up, new issues to discuss. What are some things that you've been really uh, paying particular attention to or writing that our listeners would benefit from hearing about? Well, uh, Ukraine has now become very well covered, actually. I mean, in the last 
two months, at least, uh, I don't know the US reporting, but the German reporting has become very extensive, very detailed. I mean, I've, I've lived in Ukraine for 17 years now, but sometimes I'm watching with great interest the, the German journalistic reports from some remote cities or villages that they bring in and and I learn new things that I didn't know before. I think what in Germany is not yet fully understood is how far the war actually touches upon, and I'm not sure how much that also relates to the yes, the narrowly understood national interests of countries like Germany. Yeah. So what we have in Germany is often a sort of just juxtaposition of solidarity versus security. So on the one hand, there's a lot of solidarity for Ukraine. You know, we want to help, we have empathy, we see all the suffering, we want to do something, we want to, you know, we help the refugees, we send humanitarian aid. Now we also have decided to finally send heavy heavy weapons, we descend, we send economic aid. So we do all this solidarity thing. But then, you know, the other side is security. And then people talk about World War Three, and, you know, could we become part of this conflict? Uh, couldn't there be um, an escalation? Shouldn't we be very careful? NATO could get into war with Russia. Are we ready for this? What people don't see is if we don't help Ukraine, if the war doesn't end soon, if Putin has the feeling that he can win the war and good for him to continue the war, this creates enormous risks for ourselves. Not so much maybe for Americans, but in one regard also, I think for Americans, uh, I will mention that but for instance, for Germans, you would have thought that it should have been clear once we saw, uh, we had pictures actually from fighting taking, taking place, shooting taking place at Europe's largest nuclear power plant in Saporizhia, in southern Ukraine. So there was actually fighting on the territory, of not only Ukraine's, but Europe's largest nuclear power plant. And fortunately, nothing happened. No second Chernobyl, basically. And Chernobyl, by the way, was also occupied for a while by Russian troops. Then they went away again, and apparently some of them even got radioactive contamination when they occupied Chernobyl. But on, in Saporizhia, which is an active power plant, unlike Chernobyl, we had actually fighting on an active nuclear power plant. And you would have thought that you know that should have been a big issue in in Europe, you know, after what we've experienced with Chernobyl in 1986. But it was reported, and also people worried for a while, but then it sort of disappeared. And But we have, you know, three more nuclear power plants in Ukraine. And the question is now also, now the Russians have taken the nuclear power plant in Saporizhia. You know, what happens when, they, when the Ukrainian army comes back to reconquer this territory? We have three more nuclear power plants. You would think that, you know, that should be a big issue in, in Europe. And we should be discussing this and not humanitarian issues. Uh, also, the refugee issue has not yet become fully understood. Lots of help. But Germany, we have now a couple of hundred thousand refugees. We are still sort of managing to sort of deal with them. But what happens when the fourth million, when the fifth million, when the sixth million arrives? What happens if we now have the problem with the uh, grain from Ukraine not getting to the world market, not getting to Africa, not getting to Asia. Apparently, also there will be problems with Russian grain not reaching its consumers. You know, we, we, we may get new uh, hunger refugees from Africa soon if there's hunger in, uh, you know, the, the people will just risking their lives to get into the European Union just to survive because they, they have no other uh, chance, basically.
That is also a national security issue. And then the third, and I think most worrisome, and that is also something that for the US is relevant, is the undermining of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Because the, uh, the real scandalous aspect of this war is that the war is conditioned, of course, very much by the fact that Russia has nuclear weapons and Ukraine does not have nuclear weapons. And the particularly scandalous part here is, according to the Non-Proliferation Treaty, Russia is explicitly allowed to have nuclear weapons, and Ukraine is explicitly forbidden to have nuclear weapons. And surprise, surprise, the country that has nuclear weapons and is allowed to have nuclear weapons takes a part of the country that does not have nuclear weapons and is forbidden to have nuclear weapons. And the particularly odd aspect here of it is that Ukraine once had nuclear weapons when it came out of the Soviet Union and inherited uh, thousands of nuclear warheads from the uh, Soviet Union, but it gave away these warheads. It gave them to Russia, oddly. And 20 years later, that was 1994, when Ukraine decided to give away its nuclear weapons, it was then attacked by, by Russia because it didn't, didn't have nuclear weapons. So surprise, surprise. Why wouldn't Russia then take advantage of the fact that Ukraine cannot defend itself or does not have a deterrent? And that, of course, undermines the whole logic of the non-proliferation regime, because many countries are now going to watch the situations. So many politicians and diplomats and experts, they're going to say, well, we are not going to be as stupid as the Ukrainians. Yeah, We are not going to believe in international law and some sort of memorandum or some non-proliferation treaty or some UN charter and OSCE and bilateral treaties and multilateral treaties and lots of important people telling us that we are secure, you know, no, no, we are going to get the bomb ourselves because we don't want to be end up like the Ukrainians. You know, that look at Ukraine, what happens to a country that does not have nuclear weapons and that was stupid enough to give away its nuclear weapons. And some countries may even think, well, we are not going to be not only as stupid as the Ukrainians, we're going to be as smart as the Russians. You know, we're going to get nuclear weapons and then maybe we, we will get a neighboring territory that we always wanted to get. You know, and then, and then, of course, if one country then acquires nuclear weapons, guess what the neighboring country then does? You know, and then the second country, and then the third country, and, and so on. And because you know, everybody is then afraid of the others taking their lessons from Russia on the one side and Ukraine on the other side, and we may actually end up in a different world. And that's why I think it's extremely, extremely important that all countries that are interested in the stability of the nuclear non-proliferation regime, that all countries that are in support of international law, they have to support Ukraine as much as possible, not because of empathy for Ukraine, but because of empathy for our own children, for our own grandchildren, because we don't want them to live in a world where the non-proliferation regime does not work anymore because the states are not going to believe anymore in, in international law in general and non-proliferation in particular. So it's in the national interests of, of all countries that, that want the non-proliferation regime to work, that want international law to be taken seriously, that Ukraine wins this war, because that is going to then teach, again, Everybody in the world that even if you give up your nuclear weapons, even if you are a non-nuclear weapons state, even if you are disciplined and do not acquire nuclear weapons once you are attacked by a nuclear superpower, you are still protected. There will be countries that will come to your help, that will sanction the aggressor, that will support you. That is going to be the rule of international law, if you like.
So that is in our interest. And that's something I'm trying to communicate, but it's actually very difficult in Germany. I don't know how it's in, in the US. Most people try to think of Ukraine as a country that needs help. We should think about our own national interests. And then from that, we should then conclude that we need to help Ukraine as much as we can. That's a powerful argument that I hadn't actually heard before. In talking about countries learning lessons about how they should approach nuclear weapons in recent history, right? You have the, the Libya lesson that if you give up your nuclear weapons, your regime is a threat. And that was brought up a lot in terms of denuclearizing North Korea. At least in American press, that was something that was brought up. Why would North Korea give up their weapons? They saw what happened to Gaddafi. But this is almost now, we have an offensive nuclear model. And the US or France or Germany, which have bombed uh, Libya, they did not annex a part of Libya. And they don't want to become Libya part of, I don't know, France or something like that. So um, I think that's a different story here with because you have really, it's annexation. And now there's even talk about uh, Kherson People's Republic, yet another part to be de facto annexed or even maybe even formally annexed by, by Russia. And so this is a, a very dangerous situation now. And it's, it's, it goes way beyond the Iraq war or Yugoslavia or Libya and so on. Dr. Umland, you've clearly demonstrated that there are a lot of very complicated issues at play here with repercussions we're only beginning to understand, but we really appreciate you taking the time to at least explain a few of the facets of this ongoing conflict. So thank you very much for this conversation and for your time today. Thanks a lot. I enjoyed that. And if there's an opportunity again, I'm happy to speak again. We would love to have you back on. Thank you so much. Thank it's a pleasure. The Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network. The conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slavxradio.com. Thank you. The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces.